0: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Our great Father, we would ask for you, ask you for your grace to be upon our brothers and sisters gathered at Quinault Baptist Church this morning. We pray for Pastor Mark and the entire congregation that by the grace of your spirit, you would cause them to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We also continue to pray for our friends just next door at Royal Columbian. We ask for their spiritual encouragement, for their physical health, and for their safety. And at the same time, We pray that your spirit would see fit to draw them to the Lord Jesus. We also lift up before you the work of the Tri-Cities Union Gospel Mission. Enable them, we pray, by the power of your spirit to fulfill their mission of rescue, recovery, and restoration through the gospel. Your word also calls us to intercede for those in authority over us. And so we pray specifically this morning for our president, vice president, and the cabinet. As Christians, we desire to lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So we would ask that you would work in and through the president to that end. Then we also pray for Mike and Cecilia Palm, missionaries serving in Papalote, Mexico. Fill them with your spirit so that they would possess wisdom and grace for their service and ministry to the pastors and to the other missionaries in Papalote. And then we would also pray for a team from here that is planning to head down there just next month. From the planning of that trip to the provision necessary to go, we ask that you would work for the good of our people and for the glory of your name. As we turn our attention now more broadly to the congregation, to ourselves, we ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Do so so that we would walk in a manner worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to you. Cause us to bear fruit in every good work that we embark on and cause us to ever increase in our knowledge of who you are, Father. Strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might. Strengthen us for for all endurance and patience and cause it to be mingled with joy. Do all of this so that we would be a people who give thanks to you. For you, Father, have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We rejoice in you this morning, for you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the very forgiveness of our sins. As we go about living the lives you've ordained for us this week, we pray that our lives, whether they be in the home or outside of the home, that that they would be characterized by us doing good, and by us bringing you honor, and by us commending the gospel to those who are around us. We also ask that you would show us how truly needy we really are, and as you do, that you would cause us to grow in prayer. And by that, we don't mean only our personal private prayer, but also our public corporate prayer. As we gather here this morning and then again this evening, grow us in this participation of prayer, while at the same time granting to your people a unity of mind. We would also bring before you the physical needs that we have. We ask that you would sustain us and heal us. That you would work in and through us. And then, in this vein, we can't help but think of of Jonathan Perry. and, And we ask that you would continue to uphold this young man. And if you would see fit, that you would extend his life by eradicating these cancer cells from his body. We also pray for souls, Father. On the heels of yesterday's highways and hedges, we give you thanks this morning. Thank you for the literally hundreds of paper missionaries that went out. Thank you for the preaching of your word that filled the air. And we ask that your spirit would draw souls to Christ through our feeble efforts. And for this church, we pray that you would continue to give us a burden for evangelism. We confess to you now, recognizing that, that, that in our own hearts there resides a, a deep apathy. Something where we sort of revolt against anything that would threaten our comfort. We pray that you would rouse us from our slumber, that you would give us the mind of Christ. And now at this time, we would ask that you would prepare us to hear your word, both read and preached. We know that apart from your Holy Spirit attending this exercise, we will remain lifeless and hopeless. And so we would pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts to receive your word. We ask all of these things of you, Father, in the name of your Son, And we do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. We do so asking for our good and for your glory. And all of God's people said together, Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be able to open up God's word with you once again this Lord's Day. So I would invite you to do so now. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. And as you were doing so, please stand uh, that we might honor God in the reading of his word. Galatians chapter 3. We left off last week in verse 18, so we find ourselves this morning in verse 19. And by God's grace, we are going to look at verses 19 through 25. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please find your seats once more this morning. This might come as a shock to some of you, but it is July in the Tri-Cities, and so it's hot. And perhaps some of you, no doubt owing to the heat Perhaps some of you have sought to cool down your otherwise warm homes in some rather unconventional ways. Let's say, for example, that you go home this afternoon, and in an effort to take the edge off, what you do is you go into your kitchen, and you open up your freezer door wide open, and you just leave it that way. Now, I will grant you that's innovative, But the question is, is it effective? The answer is no. The token HVAC man has spoken. It won't be long until your wide open freezer begins to warm up, causing all this frozen food to unthaw and then be ruined. If that wasn't bad enough, your freezer will prematurely overheat and wear out, and now you will not only have a huge mess on your hands cleaning all of this up, but you will do so, let's not forget, in a very hot house. Why all of this calamity, you ask? Because your freezer was never designed to cool down your home. What redeeming grace? The false teachers who were plaguing the churches in Galatia were doing something similar. Not with their freezers, but with God's law. They were using the law of God improperly. That is to say, they were using the law of God in a way that it was never designed to be used. This is why the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Galatians has gone to such great lengths to remind these fledging churches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Full stop. No buts. Christ and Christ alone saves. And Christ saves by grace alone. And the only way that we lay hold of Christ and His Gospel is by faith alone. And in laboring this central life-giving truth, the Apostle Paul has also gone to great lengths to show that salvation, the Gospel, Christ, justification, righteousness, inheritance, heaven, None of it, none of it will ever come through the law. Let's remember that's the cyanide that these false teachers were peddling. They were saying that Christ was not enough they say sure you need Christ that's true but you also need the law you need your obedience to it you need to make sure that you offer something you need to have some sort of resume to present before God if you would hope that your sins would be forgiven and that you would be allowed to enter into his presence but of course the apostle Paul would have none of it he rightly saw what so many evangelicals today don't namely that to mix the law and the gospel is to destroy both the law and the gospel. This is why if you go back to Galatians chapter 2. This is why in Galatians chapter 2 verse 3 Paul refused to have Titus circumcised. Why? Because to do so would have communicated that one needed to be circumcised, to stand right in God's sight. It's also why you will remember Paul made such a scene at uh, the church potluck and confronted Peter in front of everybody to his face, Galatians 2.11. Peter's refusal that day to eat the baby back ribs was in effect blurring the line between law and gospel. This all culminates really in Galatians 2.16, which is really Paul's sort of quintessential statement in all of the letter. Galatians 2.16 reads, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And and remember, justification means to be right in God's sight. So, So what justifies Not works of the law, not by your doing, not by your efforts, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Building upon this wonderful gospel reality, Paul reminds us in Galatians 2.21, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if you could attain your own righteousness by your own law keeping, then why on earth did Christ come to the earth? Why on earth was Christ born? Why did he live? Why did he die? Why did he do all of that if you could save yourself? From there, Paul takes the Galatians all the way back to the Old Testament. And he does so to show them that this has always been the case. Being right in God's sight has never, never been the result of you and I's faithfulness to the law. But it's always rested on our faith in God and His promises. This is why Abraham plays such a central and pivotal role in Galatians chapter 3. Because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, quoting Genesis 15, 6, we read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, so you and I being declared righteous is not the result of our pseudo obedience to the law, but instead it's owing entirely to Christ what he has done, and our faith in him. And beloved, the point that Paul is making in Galatians 3 is simply this. That is not some New Testament novelty. That's always been the story of the Bible. From Genesis 3 on, any and every human being will be saved only one way and only the same way. as by faith in the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, we're all tempted. We're all tempted to look in the mirror. We're all tempted to update our resume and, and to think that, that if we would just do this or do that, that somehow we would gain a better standing before God. If we fall into that trap, we need to remember Galatians three ten. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. This is vitally important. Curses await those who work for their standing before God while blessings wash over the heads of those who rest in Christ for their standing before God. This is why Paul can say, this time in Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one. Why? Well, because the law won't do it. The law can't do it. No person will ever stand before God on their own merits. The only way we'll ever stand before God and not be obliterated is by standing on the merits of Christ. Moving forward in Paul's argument, it must be understood that the law, the Mosaic Covenant, It came more than four centuries after God's promises to Abraham. Promises that Abraham received by faith. And therefore, this time Galatians 3.17, the law cannot make the promise void. Moses' law cannot thwart the promises that God gave to Abraham. Now, that's a very quick recap that none of you asked for, but I think is necessary. And the recap is necessary because as you and I sort of step back and look at Galatians as a whole up to this point, we might begin to develop this sort of idea about what Paul thinks about God's law. We want to be as charitable as we can, but we are sort of left with the impression that the Apostle Paul has an allergy toward God's law. Is the law bad? Is, is the law evil? I mean, is is God's law an accident? Is it a plan B? Is it an, is it an audible? I, I say all of this because Paul has been speaking about the centrality of faith. And in so doing, we could read it as if Paul is being critical of the law. And so, this all provokes two questions. You find them in verses 19 and 21. The first in verse 19 asks, why then the law? Again, for, for, for three and a half chapters, the Apostle Paul has, at least it appears, sort of disparaged the law of God. And so the question is, well, why the law? And then the second question is found in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Or are we going to sort of paraphrase the the whole flavor here? Given the centrality of faith and grace in the gospel, what are we supposed to do with the law? Well, let's see how Paul answers those questions. The first, as I just said, is found in verse 19. Uh, Paul, it appears, he sort of anticipates the question, or even we might say anticipates the objection. Why then the law? Or if we can dig just a little bit deeper below the surface, if the law cannot serve to make salvation possible, then what end does the law serve? Church, what's the point of the law? Paul answers in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. Or we could say it this way the law was given to show us our sin. That is one of the main purposes of the law, beloved. It is to reveal our sin. That's what God's law does. Like an x ray reveals the tumor. So God's law reveals the sin inside of us. Just as you might get a wild hair and pull out your fridge at home and shine a flashlight behind it. So the law exposes us and all of our filth. In the same way that you might crawl out of bed in the morning and look in the mirror and be horrified by what you see. So the law uncovers all of our imperfections and puts them on full display. This is the purpose of the law. It is to reveal our sin. And and this is not just sort of something that Paul leans into here in Galatians. This this idea of of the law and how it reveals our sin, this is something that we find throughout the, the writings of the apostles, in particular Paul. You might consider Romans as just an example. In Romans 3.20, Paul declares, hear this, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. He goes a little bit further in Romans 5.20. There he says, the law came in to increase the trespass. Still not content. Romans 7 5 announces while we were living in the flesh, <clears throat> our sinful passions were aroused by the law. It's Romans 7 5. So catch this, and and as you do, take note of something of the progression that we see here in Romans three. The law gives knowledge of sin. In Romans five, the law increases sin. By the time you get to Romans seven, the law is arousing sin from within us. So what does all of this mean? Well, beloved, it means and that God's law, and here, just to be clear, we're talking about God's moral law as summarized in the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. What God's law does is it defines sin and it clarifies sin and it even increases sin. We can go out from a different direction. The law tells us what sin is. The law tells us that we are guilty of sin. And the law even incites sin within us. Which means, and this is something that a lot of Christians get sideways, and and you see this coming up in the Bible over and over again. We read this wrong. The law doesn't prevent sin. The law, strangely enough, actually provokes sin. Maybe as an example. Think of the speed limit signs that we so gleefully go whizzing by each and every day. We we are driving down the street and we look at the posted limit, the law, if you will, and we think to ourselves, that's not the limit. That's the minimum. And so... We are heading out of town, and we get on the highway, and the posted limit is 60 miles an hour, and so as a good Christian, you set your cruise control for 64 miles per hour. And then, when someone actually has the audacity to drive at the speed limit, what do we do? In rage, we go whizzing by them 20 miles an hour. We give them one of those. You know the posted limit. You know that to exceed 60 miles an hour is to break the law, but you and I, we go 64 miles an hour anyway. Here's the question. Would you go 64 miles per hour if there was no posted limit? Or do you and I go 64 miles an hour because we know that the posted limit is only 60 miles an hour. Beloved, the point is this, going back to Galatians 3, the law itself will never solve our sin problem. All the law will ever do is only exacerbate our sin problem. That is the purpose of the law. What about its place, though? That brings us to verse 21. And the second question, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul answers emphatically, doesn't he? Verse 21, certainly not. That's like a big fat no with three exclamation points after it. So if the law is not contrary to God's promises, then what is the law's place? You ready? If the law's purpose is to reveal sin then the law's place is to reveal the Savior. See, this is the point of God's law in redemptive history. It is to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that here, doesn't he? He tells us in the middle of verse 21, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But... The Scripture, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin. That includes you and me and that sweet old lady crossing the street. Everything under sin. Here it is. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law can't give life. The law can only bring death. In fact, the law, all it does is reveal that we are in fact sinners and because the wages of sin is death, what each and every one of us deserve is death. This is what the law does. But to what end? Again, the end of verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who work, to those who do their best, to those who get a fresh start each day and repeat these ten principles for themselves, but to those who believe. The law's purpose is to reveal sin so that sinners would run to the Savior. That's what the law does. It drives us lawbreakers by faith to the one who has kept the law for us. And in that way, the law and the gospel are not enemies, but actually friends. Let me be clear, because I've I've said the exact opposite in other places, so, so let me qualify all of this. They are enemies if you mix them, right? Law and gospel quickly become bitter foes if you conflate them. And if you conflate them, you destroy them. But the law is really good as the law. And the gospel is really great as the gospel. You have to see that they both have their place. And just so long as you understand that, as you understand that they play different parts and they, they have a different purposes, and, and if you keep them where they belong, then they are friends. Think, if you will, bear with me, about your shoes and your socks. For a moment. They are intended, are they not, to work together. But if you mix them, if you switch them, if you get them all turned around, then you are going to ruin them. How so? you ask? Well, if you use your socks as shoes, anybody has small children? If you use your socks as shoes, what are you going to do to your socks? You're going to get hold of them. You're going to ruin them. Well, if you wear your shoes without your socks, any of you married to men, you're going to stink up the shoes and you're going to muck up your feet. And in the event that you put your shoes on first and then you try to pull your socks over your shoes, you're just going to look like a clown. We must distinguish the law and the gospel. We must keep the law of the law, keep shoes, shoes, and keep the gospel the gospel, keep socks, socks. Neither are bad. Truth be told, both are great when used the way that God designed them. So hopefully after asking and then answering those two questions from verses 19 and 21, my hope is that we have something of a balance about us. Again, we see the law and the gospel, and we see how the law and gospel understood correctly both work together to exalt Christ. But they are different. The law is the law, the gospel is the gospel, and you cannot mix them in that way. So with that in mind, what I want to do now is revel in the glorious contrasts that exist between them. To be more specific, in looking at Galatians 3, I want you to see that there are five ways that the Apostle Paul distinguishes law and gospel. Law, you will remember, is what you do, and the gospel is what Christ has done for you. The the law condemns and Christ saves. So to begin with, and as I've already said this a little bit, so so we'll be brief here, the first contrast is that the law reveals sin and the Gospel reveals the Savior. This is the first and most paramount contrast that exists between law and Gospel. The law was, verse 19, added because of transgressions. On the other hand, the Gospel was revealed. and, And by that, I mean this. By gospel, just so we're all on the same page, by gospel we mean Christ. The fact that Christ took on human flesh. The fact that Christ has come and He has obeyed the law of God that you and I have broke and that by obeying that law, Christ has merited righteousness for us. Christ comes. He forgives us of our sins by dying on the cross for us and in that death, paying the penalty that you and I owed for our sins. There on the cross, Christ dies under the wrath of God because that is what your sin and my sin deserves. Let's be clear. It deserves the wrath of God. So Christ stands in our place. He bears in his own body the wrath of God and he dies. He's put in the ground, he's buried, and then three days later, God raises his son up from the dead and he raises him up in victory over sin and over death and over hell. That is what we mean by the gospel. And that gospel was revealed so that, end of verse 22, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the contrast? The law reveals our sin. It reveals us in all of our guilt and our griminess. While the gospel reveals the Savior, Christ, in all His glory, and in all His grace. Another contrast that exists between law and gospel, or we might say between old covenant and new, is this. One is temporary, the other is permanent. One is temporary, the other is Permanent. This is manifested in at least two ways in our passage. First, I want you to notice that the law, or the old covenant, had an expiration date. To see this, look at verse 19 again. Paul asks, why then the law? Answer, it was added because of transgressions, note the word, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So so catch this, the old covenant, the law, it had a shelf life. It was until, verse 19, the offspring would come. And and because we've read the other section, the earlier section in Galatians 3, we know who this offspring is, right? We learned back in Galatians 3.16 that the offspring, singular, is Christ himself. So the law stood over and governed the people of God. That's what the Old Covenant did temporarily until the coming of Christ. And once Christ has come, the Old Covenant is fulfilled and made obsolete. That's just one way its temporariness is contrasted with the permanence of the New Covenant. The other is with this strange idea there in verse 24 of guardianship. Verse 24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Notice again the temporal nature of the law. It was our guardian until Christ came. Has Christ come? I think so. So the law was our guardian. But guardian in what way? How is the law, metaphorically speaking, of course, our guardian? Well, interestingly enough, Paul uses a specific word here that would have resonated with the original hearers. It it is the word pedagogos. And and I only bring that up because we actually derive our English word pedagogue from it. Now, in English, when we hear the word pedagogue, we, I think, instantly think of teacher or educator, something like that. But that is not the way that the Galatians would have heard it. And that's because in the ancient world, the pedagogue was less an educator and more a disciplinarian. So you might think of an old school teacher who cracked knuckles with her ruler if kids got out of line. Or we might think of a warden of a prison who keeps things running smoothly by punishing rebellious inmates. Or or even of of a babysitter or a nanny who disciplines the children when they get out of line. That was, in a lot of ways, the role of the law. The law was clear. It said, here are the rules, and if you go sideways, here are the consequences. That same law, and and here's Paul's point, it was temporary. Again, it was in place. It was a guardian until Christ came. I, I have good news for you. The English teacher who chastised you for your improper use of the comma was temporary. Once you graduate high school, you don't have to deal with English teachers ever again. It's glorious. Wardens have no jurisdiction over you when you have served your time and you are released from their care. And if you are, I don't know, 20-something and still in need of a babysitter, then there is something massively wrong with you. And the reason there's something massively wrong with you is because babysitters are only for when you are a little person. Again, there's a shelf life here. The Old Covenant was temporary. It was equivalent to adolescence. But now what Paul is saying is in the wake of Christ and in the the ushering in of the new covenant, we no longer need a guardian. We have, church, outgrown the old covenant. Let me show you a third way the law and gospel are contrasted. And that's how they are given. This, this, This is a strange one, I think, to most of our ears. The law was given indirectly, but the gospel directly. You find this, again, sort of strange idea to our ears in verse 19. The law, we are told, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the giving of the law, it came indirectly to Moses. Moses. Paul's point seems to be that that the law originated with God, who passed it on to angels, who in turn gave it to Moses. By contrast, the promise, the gospel, it came directly from God to Abraham. No intermediaries, no middlemen, if you like. And so Paul's point seems to be that the use of angels, these intermediaries, reveal the law's subordinate nature to the promise given to Abraham. That is to say, the old covenant is inferior to the new covenant. And that is because the new covenant has come directly to us, unmediated. How directly, you ask? Well, this really is, again, one of the splendors of the gospel, God Himself, not an angel, took on flesh. God Himself has come and lived among us. God Himself, Acts 20, verse 28, has shed His blood. God has done all of this Himself. Or as you know, I'm prone to say, God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. The the law comes indirectly through channels. The gospel is God saying, I'll do it myself. And he does. That's what makes the gospel better than the law. Allow me to point out yet another way. This be the fourth way in which the law and gospel are contrasted. The law imprisons, the gospel frees. The law imprisons, the gospel frees. Verse 22 but the Scripture imprisoned everything. Imprisoned everything under sin. Verse 23 then adds, Now before faith came, we were, listen to this language, held captive under the law. And then he repeats the language again from verse 22. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So, so not only can the law not save, but the law condemn the law arrests, imprisons, and enslaves. This is what the law is. This is what the law does. It it places heavy shackles upon us. And the reason that the law can do this is because we are sinners, and because we are sinners, and because the law is powerless to save, the law is powerful to condemn. It can't justify us. It can't make us Righteous. All the law can do is point its bony finger at us, say guilty, lock us up in prison, and throw away the key. Beloved, if we would be free, if we would want those shackles to fall from our wrists and ankles, then our only hope is to look to Christ, not the law. We look to Christ. If sin is the chains that weigh us down and if the law is that prison door that that is locked and keeps us incarcerated well then Christ is the key that opens that door and unlocks our chains fifth and final contrast it's the contrast between life and death the law we are told cannot give life verse 21 is clear For if a law had been given, that could give life. If that was possible, if that even existed, then, verse 21, righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it's not. Righteousness does not come from the law. The law cannot impute righteousness to you. The law can't give you life. All the law can do is crush you and curse you And condemn you. In this way, the law is not unlike chemotherapy. We all know, right, that that when chemotherapy is used to treat cancer, that chemo is not the source of life. What does the chemo do but actually kill? The chemicals that are, that are poured into the body, they destroy everything. Not just the cancer cells, right? But they also destroy even those healthy tissue cells. It's an all-out assault upon the body. And if you've ever had the encounter with somebody who is going through this sort of cancer treatment, You can see it in their face. This is not helping them. No one enduring this treatment feels better in the middle of it. They actually feel like garbage. Well, similarly, the law doesn't give life. The law, like chemo only, kills. Life is found in Christ. Life is found in his gospel. Life is found, beloved, in the fact that Christ would give up His life so that you would have life. Now, if we want to further the chemotherapy metaphor, we could say that while it is true chemo doesn't give life, it is necessary for the patient's long-term health, isn't it? In much the same way, the law makes us worse and worse and worse. But it does so, so that Christ can make us better. This is why we preach the law and the gospel. The law prepares the soul for the gospel. The law tells us that we are guilty. But we don't stop there. The gospel promises that guilty sinners can be made free. So redeeming grace, given all of this, Given all that we've seen about the law and the gospel this morning, right? How the law reveals sin, how the law is temporary, how it was given indirectly, how it imprisons those under its care, how it ultimately brings about death. Here's the question. Don't miss the forest for the trees. This is the question that is looming large over all of Galatians. Are you ready? Given everything that we've seen about the law, why on earth would you look to the law for your righteousness? Why on earth would you think that you have it in and of yourself that you can somehow merit righteousness before God? Paul's point is, this is all spiritual suicide. The law was never designed to give sinners like you and I righteousness. You might as well go home and leave your freezer wide open all day to cool down your house that's about how much sense it makes to turn to the law for your source of righteousness. Truth be told, the only way, dear church, you'll ever have any peace and any assurance. The only way that you and I will grow and mature in the Christian faith. The only way that we'll truly grow in our love for God and our love for neighbor. The only way we'll grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the only way that you'll actually found righteous, find righteousness is by looking away from yourself and fixing your eyes upon Jesus Christ. Your gaze is to be focused not on your doing, but on Christ's doing. Your hope and confidence is not rooted in your law keeping, but beloved in Christ's law keeping. Christian, all your righteousness, every single drop of it is found not in how good you are. But in how good Christ is. This is critical, church. The law and the Gospel have different purposes. They do different things. The law wasn't given to make you righteous any more than Christ was given to make you unrighteous. The law condemns and shows you your need for Christ. And the Gospel announces Christ is a great Savior to those who are condemned. Let us then have forever settled in our hearts and our minds and our souls. The law bruises and beats us, but the gospel binds up our wounds. The law arrests and imprisons us, but Christ sets us free. The law condemns and kills, but Christ offers justification and life. The law drives us to despair and discouragement, but Christ brings us hope and comfort. Know this, the law will drag you down to hell, but Christ has come to raise you up to heaven. So believe in Him, church. Trust in Him. Rely upon Him. We are right in God's sight solely on account of who Christ is and what He has done. The message of the Scriptures, the message of the Gospel is not, I repeat, not work harder, figure it out, get it done, earn or or maintain your own righteousness. Instead, rest in the One who who has earned your righteousness and does maintain your righteousness for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we have lingered over your word this morning. And we pray that your spirit would see fit to impart life to us. And we pray that that your spirit, through the proclamation of your word, would not only engender faith, but, but draw us more fully to rely upon Christ. We pray that that you would keep us from putting any confidence in the flesh, but that we would truly delight in and trust Christ, our Savior. Help us to to not look in the mirror, but look to the cross and change us from the inside out, that we might grow in our love and our affections for you and for those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.